0: Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Kivett, for inviting me to come and share this home, homecoming, that's the old word, the anniversary service with you. And I am delighted to do that. And thank you for being here today and for affording me an opportunity to speak to you. Now, I was ready to preach when you sang The Living Hope. That's my favorite song. And my 10-year-old grandson loves that song. He's memorized every word. He sings it all the time, going through the house by himself. Nobody around him or nobody paid any attention but him. He's singing the living hope, my living hope. Love that song. And I'm just delighted to sing it with you on this day. But thank you so much for allowing me to be here and Judy to be here with me today. We have enjoyed our brief visit and we'll head back up the road to Richmond, Virginia later today. But for right now, we're just delighted to be with you. And thank you. For supporting our son, John, and his mission work down in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And you've been faithful to him, sent out by this church. And he's uh, he's there, pastoring a little tiny struggling church and teaching in the small Bible college. But thanks for your support. And by the way, you gave incredibly to um, goods that, um, that gave relief to the volcano victims last spring. And the volcano in said, Vincent, it didn't destroy cities and towns by blowing them up or burning them down. It weighted them down with ashes huge amounts of ash and that ash when it got wet and then got hot in that sun in the caribbean turned to concrete and houses just collapsed and those people had to get out of, um, of where all that ash was and he helped dozens and dozens and dozens of families thank you thank you to the missions committee thank you to alan lakey who spearheaded that and thank you to everybody who had participated in it take the word of god would you John chapter 14 is our text, and the subject is, Arise, get up, let us go from here. Now I'll start with an illustration which any one of you could give. You all know it. It was September the 11th, 2001, and uh, I was here in the church that morning, and downstairs in the pastor's office. And Ron Hughes, my brother now in heaven, called to Joanne, his wife, who was there working, and said, the plane had just flown into uh, the World Trade Center in New York City. And, and then my brother Floyd Bowles, who's here in the auditorium today, I love Floyd Bowles. I've never known a more faithful man of God in all my life and it's a delight to, just to hug his neck on this particular day. And Floyd got a TV set out for us and hooked it up and we, we observed that day as the, the second plane came and the towers fell and all of things happened. But on that way, flight 93 left Newark, New Jersey, or, and and flew towards San Francisco, and just past, just west of Cleveland, Ohio, it was commandeered by the terrorists, and they killed the pilots, and they took over the plane, and they turned that plane, and they headed towards Washington, D.C., and then you know the story. Many of those passengers found out via, tele, uh, via their phones and being able to connect somehow with them and get some news and speak to some of, the, of their family or their acquaintances of what was going on that morning. And realizing that they were going to die, they, um, they decided to take command as best they could. And they got together, and they got a food cart, and a whole group of them got behind that food cart, and they went down that plane to the, to the cockpit where they attacked the cockpit. And they achieved something remarkable that day. They recognized a need. There was an overwhelming need that day to do something to stop that plane. And I'm sure they had no idea for sure where that thing was headed, but they were going to do their very best to know that it could not, uh, that, that it would not get to where it was going. And they made a decision. Now, I can only surmise that they decided. That they were going to die anyway. They were going to choose this way, though the choice they made meant for them death. And they attacked that cockpit, and that plane went straight into the ground in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. But they achieved something remarkable. Now we can't say with any certainty what that was, but we're pretty sure that plane was headed for the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., the symbol and the center of the government of the United States of America, where senators would have died and congressmen would have died and a huge number of staff members would have died, and a nation would have been brought to its knees in a greater humiliating way than it had before. They recognized a need. They made a decision to do something about that need, and they gave their lives, in a monumental achievement. I want you to go with me to chapter 14 this morning. and Actually, to begin with, I would like you to look, please, at verse 31 of chapter 14 of the Gospel of John for a similar situation, in a sense, involving the Lord Jesus Christ. What one has here is, is Christ's less role comment. Todd Beamer said that on Flight 93... Well, the Lord Jesus didn't say it in those words. I'm using the vernacular of our day, but he certainly said something. Note verse 31, but I do as the Father hath commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, get up, let's go from this place. In essence, let's roll. Now go with me in your mind right now. Go with me back to that day as you understand it from the Word of God itself. We generally refer to the event as the the Last Supper. I like to say the last Passover that the Lord Jesus observed with anyone on earth before he um, he died on Calvary's cross and ultimately went back to heaven. But the Passover is done now. The disciples' feet have already been washed in that evening, the Lord's Supper has been instituted already. Judas is gone, only the 11 are there, and the Lord Jesus is now going to talk with them extensively in one of the most poignant statements Christ ever gave in the Word of God. It begins in chapter 13, it ends in chapter 17. It started in the upper room in the upper room where they just observed the last passover in the institution of the lord's supper he begins teaching and we believe probably that chapter 14 he gave while he was there in the upper room and then he'll move out of the upper room and they with him and they'll go down the slopes of mount zion and perhaps he's teaching all the way. We don't know that for sure. And across the Kidron Brook and over into the Garden of Gethsemane where he will pray and sweat as though it were great drops of blood. And all along the way he is giving chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and finally the high priestly prayer of chapter 17. And in essence, this is his less role chapter. In interpretation, this is pre-Calvary. In a few hours, he'll be on the cross, and he'll shed his blood for our sins, and he'll give up his life. Pre-Calvary, and here are his private instructions to his chosen disciples for that period of time. And note, please, for our Lord, that what he is doing right now is accepting eternity's assignment. From the councils of eternity past, he's had this assignment from the Godhead. He was to die for your sins, yea, the sins of a whole world at Calvary's cross. That which he will achieve will be so monumental that we can't even find words that adequately describe what he did. But we do know, those of us who are headed for heaven today, that in our lives it was monumental. He faces Gethsemane. He faces Golgotha. He faces the grave. He faces allowing the sin of the world to be placed on his body on a tree. And yet he said to the disciples, let's roll. It's God's appointment from eternity past. Let's go. For the disciples, it was their life's assignment. They didn't understand very much about it. All they know is he's leaving. He's told them that, and they are hurting because he's leaving. There will be no kingdom now. They thought there would be a kingdom now. They thought he would become their uh, Messiah reigning on David's throne in that very instant, and it isn't going to happen. And they don't quite grasp it all. He's told them repeatedly now about his impending death, and they don't grasp at this moment the birth of the church. And they're going to participate in giving birth to the church of Jesus Christ, of which you and me are a portion on these days. Their life's assignment awaited them. Their achievements were monumental. And you and me are benefiting from that. And to that, the Lord Jesus said, let's roll. But let's bring it down to us in our day. Calvary already happened. It's not pre-Calvary this morning. It's pre-rapture. Pre-rapture and applicable instructions applied to you and me on this particular day. We have, you and me, Salem, we have life's assignment awaiting us. The spiritual need in this community, the spiritual need in this county The spiritual need of people that you touch on a regular basis, you pass them, you speak to them, you touch them in one way or another, is absolutely incredible. And your pastor has challenged you to reach 1% of the population of Winston-Salem. Just one of every 100. Now, I'm using the same data that he used, of course, but I looked up on January the 11th, and the population that I looked at on, on the Internet was two, the city of Winston-Salem, just the city, was 249,595, and 1% of that is 2,495 souls, one out of 100. And you're sitting there, and you must think, but you know, man, it's tough to reach them today. They, they don't want to know. It's hard. Well, of course. I'm reminded of Darrell Walter back in the days when we were out at Swan Creek Baptist Church before moving down to Winston-Salem, Darrell was driving for Junior Johnson out there just a a few miles from where we were living, and and Darrell said, about the, um, the Charlotte 600-mile race. You know, normally, NASCAR races are 500 miles, sometimes 400. And then there's the 600-mile race in Charlotte. Back in the days of Darrell when we were there, it was the Coca-Cola 600. And Darrell said, you know, a lot of the drivers look at that thing. And they say, another 100 miles? What? Sitting in the car, driving that thing at those speeds, going through the drudgery, drained and they kind of hate the extra hundred miles somebody tacked on for that one race. Harold said, I don't look at it like that. To me, it's opportunity. You have an opportunity. It's not a burden to say, let's go out here and reach 1% of the population of Winston-Salem. It's an opportunity of the Lord. And just as Christ looked at eternity's assignment and the disciples, though they didn't comprehend it, looked at life's assignment, you and me have an assignment for the Lord and your leadership, your pastor and your leadership are leading you in that direction. And we know something about it all, someday, somewhere, in a church just like this one, it might be here, it might be out on a mission field somewhere where one of the members of Salem Baptist Church is leading a mission work someplace. The final soul in the church age is going to be reached and the trumpet's going to sound. And it'll all be done. And we won't have an opportunity to fulfill the assignment, we won't have the privilege anymore to be rolling for the Lord Jesus. But I need to ask you today, it doesn't matter if if you exit this life via the gateway of death, or if you exit this life because the trumpet sounds and the church gets caught away, it doesn't really make any difference. Will you in that moment be caught empty-handed? No souls for whom you prayed. Pouring out your heart and and this draining kind of prayer that that has been described as the effectual, fervent prayer. And we're going to come to a word uh, in the text as we plow down through this a little ways. And we're going to discover that uh, there is a a meaning to uh, the word that's very impactful. Will you be empty-handed? Or will you be caught in the moment when the trumpet sounds dragging your feet? There's always folks in a church dragging their feet because they don't like something. Something isn't going their way. Well, look, we are a diversified group of people. We come with different attitudes and different opinions and different tastes and different backgrounds, and we do not agree on a whole host of stuff. But will you be caught dragging your feet or will your hands be on the plow? Well, my challenge today, and I need to get busy here, is let's roll. And as you roll, I got three things I want to say. As you roll, Jesus cares about you. You're in John chapter 14. Look at these wonderful little verses. Look at, please, at verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And here's the truth He cares about your inner calmness. He cares about your heart, your inner being, your emotions. The expression is be not troubled. Do not let acute distress of any variety for any reason, when inside of you or even inside the corporate body as it is identified here in a local assembly called Salem Baptist. You know, the Lord Jesus understands. The Word of God says He was tempted in all points like as we are tempted, and so it is. You're in chapter 14. Just glance back a few verses at verse 31 of chapter 13, would you? Because here is proof that Jesus understands what you feel inside today. When He had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified uh, in Him. Chapter 13, verse 21. I should have been reading. I enjoyed reading verse 31. Didn't you enjoy hearing that? But back in verse 21, actually, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. It's the same word as verse 21. He understands, He cares. He understands what you're feeling in your heart today. He understands what's happening in your home today. He understands what's going on in your life today. He understands what's happening in this church today. And he cares about it all, and he cares about calming your heart so you will be ready to accomplish the assignment he has placed before you. Verse 2 of this chapter, 14. In verse 2, those familiar words... In my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He cares about your mental confidence, not only does He care about you being calm as you face what you're going to be doing for the Lord Jesus, but he cares about the confidence of your mind. You know that all is set for you. Your future is set, and you can count on it. And he uses three words here in in this verse that that give us some sense of of how confident we can be. Uh, The first one is the word uh, house. It's oikia. My father's dwelling quarters... Now, you're sitting here, and you know Jesus as your personal Savior, I trust, I pray that you do, and you already know that heaven is your home. You already know that in the Father's living quarters, you will someday be able to abide as well. I had a friend, an old country preacher, came to preach for us once out in the country when I was out at Swan Creek. He called it the big house, God's big house. But then it gets narrowed down a little bit as your confidence gets deepened and your confidence gets enlarged to some degree. The second word is rooms, it's monai living places, it's plural, there are many of them. And then he comes down to a third word, it's the word place, and the word place is topon, and topon is a space all your own. So here you are, you've accepted Christ as Savior, you've been born again, you have not only the calmness that the God gives you when Jesus reigns in your heart, you have the confidence in your mind, hey, it's all right. If he comes today, I'm ready. If he calls me home through death, I am ready. If uh, I die during the night as I lay my head on my pillow, it's okay, I'm ready, I have this confidence. What more could you ask? And what more could you want? But I have a follow-up question. How much less do you want for those 2,495 souls who are out there that God is guiding you to impact for Christ? me move along when we look at verse 3 of the chapter and in verse 3 those familiar words and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and take you to myself that where I am there you may be also if I go is a, is a speaking of a future, and the future is conditioned on his going. So He has to go in order for the future to be true, but if I go, I will come again. At the correct moment, I will come back. I love this thought. It's not the destination that is emphasis, the emphasis of this verse. It's the person who comes to get you. Christ's immediate presence you will then be in. Christ's uh, inseparable presence you will then be in for all eternity future. It's a wonderful thought. I've often thought of Jesus coming and taking the souls that belong to him one at a time as they step out of this life and into the next life. And Christ leads them as they go. But if it's the rapture, he's coming personally to get us and take us back. What more could you want? What more could you ask for? What more could you ever wish? Calmness of heart given by God the Holy Spirit to governs your life, confidence in your mind, and assurance in your heart. He cares about your heart assurance, assurance in your heart that all is well. But please, what less do you wish for any of those who are out there? whom God has directed you and is pointing you to reach for the Lord Jesus Christ. As you roll, He cares. And as you roll, Jesus Himself is the path to victory. Verses 4 and 5 of the chapter, please. This is Thomas, and Thomas is actually speaking here for the entire group when he says, uh, the Lord Jesus said, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to Him, Lord... We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Not so much doubting Thomas right now, but Thomas was a very reasonable question. The disciples are caught up in the moment. They're caught up in the situation in which they exist. They don't really understand all that's going on here. He has told them he's believing their hearts are breaking. There will not be a kingdom now. They, they don't quite comprehend all of that. And he said he was going to die, and that one they really don't get. And, and they haven't even processed in their minds the potential of moving on to his resurrection from the grave, which he has also mentioned to them. And Thomas is speaking for the entire group because they are caught up in the moment. Very easy to get caught up in the situation where you live, the situation of what is happening to you right now, and wonder, what's happening? So Thomas speaks for the entire group, and then we come to verse 6. You all know it. We quote it out loud with me? You know, whatever translation you learned it from, Jesus said to him or to them, let's go together, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And here's the bottom line, the victory is in Jesus. The victory is in the Lord Jesus. Christ is the victory to everyone who, uh, who needs a victory. Notice the way to salvation, the way to forgiveness, the way to eternal life, He's the way to heaven. But notice also He's the way to peace and troubled days, strength uh, for the battle. When we're rolling for 2,495 souls, it's for Him, it's with Him, it's through Him. And here's a thought. When you go out there, okay, you humble, some of you will just be the prayer team, and you'll be crying out to God that He would give those souls and reach those people for Christ. And others of you will be the foot soldiers, and you'll go to the people uh, in your, uh, your own circle and you will participate in those outreaches of evangelism or discipleship and discipleship in one way or another, you are going or you are praying as if Jesus himself were going and praying. Because he's the way to victory. But that brings us to the third thing about as you roll. As you roll, you will, will do amazing things. Verses 7 through 9 of our chapter, please, where the Word of God says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me? Here is an unnerving Rebuke. Now, Philip's issue is not an issue of his heart. Philip's issue is an issue of discernment. It is discernment that he is um, he's struggling with right now. He just doesn't quite get it. And in his moment of confusion or uncertainty, or his moment of indecision, Jesus sends an unnerving rebuke. Hear me. If you are in a moment of indecision about reaching out into Winston-Salem and Forsyth County and touching lives in one way or another, praying, giving, going, speaking, working with, reaching out to, through helping with, uh, with a, victims of a fire that just occurred a few days ago in this city, and people have been impacted as you are going to uh, reach out to them and, and to focus on their need, if is it necessary that you and me be rebuked because of our indecision and our lack of willingness to get with it and roll as we go out to do the job? Must God shake us again with an unnerving rebuke? And he said to Peter, I'm sorry, to Philip, that is, in verse 10, Philip, believe me, for my word, or my words, actually, in this case, it's not the word logos like you have in John 1, one in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is, the, is hrema, my many words. They've been with Christ these three-plus years. They've heard him speak time and time and time and time and time and time again, and yet they're somehow unmotivated to focus on this particular moment. Sometimes I think about the disconnect between the pulpit and the pew or the disconnect between the lectern and the classroom and the chairs that people are sitting in in the classroom. We hear it over and over, words of Christ poured forth so faithfully and even eloquently and fervently. Philip, you've heard me. Don't you get it yet? Well, at least believe me for my works what I have already done. God as often has to get our attention before delivering his message and give an unnerving rebuke. Is it necessary in my life and yours that he give an unnerving rebuke? You're familiar with the expression, if you don't get, if you don't shut up, I'm going to slap you up the side of your head. Right? You heard that? You thought that? Few of you said that, didn't you? Does Jesus have to do that to you and me before he can ever get us to fall in line with his life assignment and roll in doing what he called us to do in this particular place? There's an unnerving rebuke here. Must he do that? But there is secondly, and it's in verse 12, a stunning revelation. And I do want to look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to my Father. And here is a stunning Stunning revelation. You, the plural group of you to the disciples on that night before he died at Calvary, you will do the works that I do, Jesus said. You will do the work that Jesus does. Only, he said, you'll do them greater. Please, by the way, it means the upper range of the possible. You will go out there and you will do the upper range of the possible. Things people didn't dream you would be doing. Not greater miracles. He doesn't use the word miracles. Not the grandiose, not the applaudable, not the uh, record size, but greater works. It's the mundane kind of activity, the tasks, the jobs, and the normal routines. To those disciples, he's saying, you people in your lives, as you live out your lives and give birth to the church, you will go places I've never gone. Jesus didn't set foot while he was on the earth in those places, but those men would. You, spoke, you will speak to people that I have never spoken to. And it bears, it's just important that you and me remember that we, as we go as though it were Jesus himself going, will speak to people who've never heard his voice audibly, but they'll hear ours, and we will touch lives that Jesus never personally impacted as he walked on earth, but we will impact them. But finally, he gives a striking resource. Please note with me, verses 13 and 14 of this chapter. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's a striking resource. That's a wonderful text. Ask anything in the name of Jesus and he will do it. And we pray that prayer a lot. And we ask for that sort of thing a lot. And we think about that as we are praying a lot. I'm asking in your name. Just keep right on doing that. It's okay. It's applaudable. But in the context, it's asking for the ability to do those greater works than Christ that he just spoke of in the previous verse. Ask, and I'll give you the ability to do those greater works than I have done while on earth in terms of reaching the multitudes. I'll give you all the resources that are required. The word ask, that verb, it's a very, it's a very strong word. It's beg, plead, cry out for. It is a fervent asking. That's the word I, I was mentioning earlier. He's saying if you plead for those souls, ah, somewhere, if the job's going to get done, there's going to be a host of people crying out to God. You may know the names for which you're crying out or have never heard of their names, but God knows. But you're pouring out your inner being, I get emotional about things I pray for. I hear about people who are sick. I hear about people who are about to die. I hear about people who have lost their life, mate who have gone ahead of them to glory, and I cry out to the Father for them with an intensity. And I pray for my sons both preaching the Word of God on this particular morning, and I pray for them because I know the devil's after them. And I pray for men and women like Kivit and Hillary because I know that the devil is after them. And I pray for the missionaries around the world Well, I need to get down to the point that I am crying out for those individual souls in my locality that God's put me here to work, to to reach, and I need to fervently ask God. The goal is not so I could have this crown that says, wow, I did a great job. Not at all. But to esteem the Father, bring glory to the Father by crying out through Jesus' name for help. We were not on Flight 93. We were not headed for the nation's capital to destroy the capitol building. We're in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. But we recognize the need just like they did on Flight 93 and just like Jesus did that night in the upper room. And the decision is ours. Are we going for it? Are we going to say with Christ, let's roll? Because the achievements will be monumental when the trumpet sounds or when God takes us home to the gateway of death, we'll bring our sheaves with us in the sense of souls that have been reached for Christ. Sense in your heart what God's heart is and what the Lord's heart is. He has infinite love. He has infinite compassion. He has infinite concern. He has a profound desire. He is with you because He cares. That which makes the heart of Jesus pound is the cause of souls for which He shed His blood at Calvary. Expect an impending event. Someday, somewhere in a church just like this one, the final soul will be reached for Christ. But, oh Lord, may it not be that when that soul is reached for Christ, I will be empty-handed. Or I will be dragging my feet because I'm not in agreement with you. But may my hands be on the plow, in prayer, in giving, in going, in discipling, in representing the Lord Jesus wherever I am, and please hear the voice of Jesus. Arise. Let us go from here. Let's roll. Salem Baptist Church, you're on a mission for Jesus. Yes, you can. You can reach that 2,495 souls. Let's roll.